millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you listen to Pacific Islands Nations, it's really clear that they're pursuing economic development through digitization, connecting to the global economy, and that these cybersecurity threats that we face equally in Australia are an impediment, a challenge to them realizing those economic development opportunities. Unfortunately, the region's becoming a theater for geopolitical competition. Pacific nations, Southeast Asian nations have effectively had to choose between affordability of tech and security of tech. It's a real challenge for the region. You're listening to the National Security Podcast the show that brings you expert analysis, insights, and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Olivia Shen, Director at the National Security College. Today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. In today's episode, we're taking a deep dive into global cyber cooperation and capacity building. Last November, the Australian government released a new cybersecurity strategy, outlining the roadmap for Australia to become a world leader in cybersecurity by the year 2030. The strategy is comprised of six shields of cyber defence. And shield number six is all about building a more resilient region and exercising global leadership in cyber. I'm delighted to be joined today by two people who are absolutely instrumental in this element of the cyber strategy. First, we have the Assistant Minister for Foreign Affairs, the Honourable Tim Watts. A pleasure to have you on the podcast, Minister. Great to be here. And we also have Mr. Brendan Dowling, Australia's Ambassador for Cyber Affairs and Critical Technology. Welcome, Brendan. Thanks, Olivia. Glad to be here. Now, I might start with you, Minister. Um, It's quite unique for a domestic cyber strategy to focus so heavily on cyber diplomacy and that regional capacity building aspect. That's obviously been a quite deliberate decision. Why has that been prioritised and what's the the nexus as you see it between domestic and regional cybersecurity? Well, thanks, Olivia. I mean, I think the first thing to say is that cybersecurity is the fastest growing challenge in Australia's national security agenda, but it's also a major threat in our own region. Um, In the the Commonwealth Cybersecurity Strategy, we're calling for a step change in collaboration within government, between government and the private sector um, to rise to this this challenge. And I think it's imperative for the government to rise to that collaboration challenge as well. So Claire O'Neill, the Minister for Cybersecurity, is a very good friend of mine. I previously had the cybersecurity portfolio in opposition. So when we sort of sat down and started mapping out how this cybersecurity strategy should unfold, it was natural to both of us that we take a joined-up approach between the domestic agenda and the foreign policy agenda. Now, from the foreign policy perspective, you know, it's a big priority for us to retain Australia's position as being a partner of choice in the Pacific Islands on economic development and on security cooperation. Now, 
the way we're trying to pursue that is by listening to the priorities of Pacific Islands nations. And when you listen to Pacific Islands nations, it's really clear that they're pursuing economic development through digitization, through increased connectivity, you know, connecting to the global uh, economy, and that these cybersecurity threats that we face equally in Australia are an impediment, a challenge to them realising those economic development opportunities. So listening to Pacific Islands uh, nation's priorities, they were very clear with us that this needed to be a priority for our foreign policy. That's a great start. Um, and if I could turn to you, Ambassador, um, you've obviously have a lot of these engagements and conversations with our regional neighbours. What are the specific cyber threats or challenges that they're most concerned about? You know, when we're listening, what are we hearing them tell us about their real needs? Sure. So we see Pacific Islands and Southeast Asian nations really digitising at a rapid clip. You see the penetration of mobile devices. You see small businesses coming online and we see the digitization of government services. As the minister said, that's really important for development. So there's a huge number of dividends for that. But at the same time, we're just seeing cybercrime prevalent throughout the region. We can see ransomware groups targeting vulnerable Pacific Island nations, targeting communities, individuals, small businesses, governments, uh, when it comes to data theft, extortion, scams. And we can see that those threat actors are going where the vulnerabilities are. Uh, I had someone from Tonga say to me last year, how does a Russian cyber criminal even know where Tonga is? And the answer is they find the vulnerability, right, where they think the money can be extracted, where they think there is lower levels of cyber maturity, that's where they'll target. So I hear really increasing concern from our counterparts and colleagues across the region about how prevalent this threat is. And we also see that nation states are taking advantage of the same vulnerability. So I think in Pacific and Southeast Asia, cyber criminals are front of mind because it's something that's affecting daily lives and families and communities. But we're also seeing nation states very active. And I think people are conscious that, unfortunately, the region's becoming a theatre for geopolitical competition. And as we see those vulnerabilities uh, continuing, while Pacific nations, Southeast Asian nations have effectively had to choose between affordability of tech and security of tech, it's a real challenge for the region. And you touched on a really important trade-off and a really difficult part of the cyber landscape where in our region we have so many countries that are trying to develop and through digital penetration, right? But this digital age also opens up more vectors of risk. So then you have this challenge of trying to manage your economic growth, but at the same time delivering on that security of those infrastructure for economic growth that we are seeing in the digital world. And I guess you've touched on a point about, you know, cyber criminals really looking for soft targets in our region. And we've seen that play out with some of the cyber incidents over happening over the past couple of years. Um, in November, the government announced the establishment of these cyber rapid response teams in the Pacific. Uh, Brendan, could you take us through, like, sort of how these teams actually operate? And Minister, for you, how did this, like, how did this germ of idea actually emerge? Is it from those consultations with our neighbours about what they needed? I'll happy, happily touch on how the mechanics of it and let the Minister talk about the strategic agenda. As we've seen those disruptive cyber incidents in the region, effectively people have picked up the phone to us and said, we call you when there's a cyclone for help, now we need your help in this cyber incident. Um, when it's disrupted government services 
when it's disrupted the availability of communications. Uh, Vanuatu and Tonga were the key examples for us where they reached out for our assistance. What we're developing out of the cyber strategy is a standing capability to be able to pick up that phone and not just offer sympathy or awareness raising or advice, but to actually put people on a plane to engage with incident response companies and to get on the ground in countries sitting by side by side with the computer emergency response teams, eyes on glass, helping with the identification, detection, remediation and recovery. So it's effectively about getting really rapid support in country to help rebuild and recover when those incidents happen. We're going through a design phase at the moment where we're consulting with countries across the Pacific about the mechanics of the uh, program and also with industry partners because they'll be a key part to deliver that assistance. Uh, But we stand ready and willing anytime that phone calls for a major cyber incident in the Pacific, we will have people out on the next plane. Yeah, build, building on that, I mean, uh, the, the commitments in November really uh, come from listening um, to our experiences in, in the Pacific Islands. So as, as Brendan was saying, that we have a long-standing relationship of trust in the region and, and uh, there's a long-standing pattern of when disaster hits anywhere in the Pacific family, you know, Australia is there to assist. And Australians are used to seeing, you know, images on their TV screens of, you know, Australian Navy assets off the coast of uh, Pacific Islands nations after tropical cyclones or volcanic eruptions or you know, natural disasters, um, they're used to seeing the Australian aid kangaroo on people's shirts and on shipping containers in the wake of a, of a natural disaster. And this is really just a natural extension of, of that um, into the cyber domain when, when digital disasters hit. Now, we've been, we've developed that relationship of trust, that position as um, the, the partner of choice when these incidents occur. But we were really responding um, on an ad hoc basis. You know, there was a limited resource inside DFAT that was being stretched very thin by the, the number of incidents that we've been seeing, particularly over the last 18 months. So November's commitment was really a financial commitment and an institutional commitment um, to put in place the structures we need to remain as a partner of choice, to have a structure where Australian diplomats can do their thing in building those relationships of trust where we can draw on the technical expertise and capabilities of agencies within the Australian government and where we can partner with uh, private sector partners of choice to retain that status as the the partner of choice uh, when challenges hit in the Pacific family. It's quite interesting that you talk about how um, Australia being a partner of choice on disaster recovery has actually quite naturally led to us becoming a partner of choice on cyber recovery and protecting critical cyber infrastructure. It's a really important thing to sort of keep in mind that when we build these relationships, we build them incrementally and that, you know, good things lead to more good things in making sure that we are a partner of choice across all areas of that important relationship with our near neighbours. I, I want to touch on sort of, you know, this the, the cyber rapid response teams are very much sort of focused on that recovery aspect. But besides sort of unfortunately having to play a little bit of whack-a-mole with cyber incidents, what's the broader strategy for building sort of um, sovereign capability in those countries and building up their own resilience and technical skills so that they no longer are a soft target? So, so that's another uh, initiative in in the cyber strategy and another financial commitment that we made there um, is trying to go uh, you know what the, what the geeks say left of boom you know so interventions before um, a, 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 an incident occurs so we've got 16.7 million dollars committed um, in the cyber strategy 
for building long-term resilience in the Pacific. And really the way that that uh, funding stream operates is working with partners to proactively identify the kinds of vulnerabilities that Brendan was talking about earlier. Uh, there's a lot of end-of-life hardware, end-of-life software out there. And, and this is, you know, like a honeypot to threat actors. They're attracted to these vulnerabilities and they go after it. So we want to partner um, with Pacific Islands nations in addressing those vulnerabilities proactively. Um, and we also want to trial some secure by design solutions, some technical innovations um, to uplift uh, security at scale in the Pacific. But we'll really be led um, by demand and by our partnerships in the Pacific Islands as the way we roll that out. Um, importantly, you know, Pacific Islands is becoming a bit of a crowded space at the moment. There are lots of new countries coming in and, and offering help, and that's, a, that's great in a lot of respects, but it's a coordination challenge as well. Um, and importantly, there was a, an announcement on Prime Minister Albanese's uh, last visit to the United States uh, jointly with President Biden about a cyber resilience uplift commitment there, um, you know, promoting things like uh, better data management, cloud migrations, things like that. But again, we'll cooperate closely with our bilateral partners, but be really directly informed by listening to our Pacific Islands family. So it is quite of a broad sweep of kind of comprehensive um, strategies, both, you know, left and right of boom, as you put it. Brendan's got a lot on his plate coming up. (laughs) (laughs) Brendan's got a lot of boom to handle. (laughs) Now, um, coming a little bit closer to home, but touching on another aspect of uh, Shield 6 of the cyber strategy, and that's that international coordination and leadership. We've heard some pretty big announcements recently with the foreign minister announcing that the government has sanctioned an individual responsible for the Medibank cyber attack in 2022. Um, Minister, can you tell me why that's happened and what's the impact of this? Yeah, well, under that shield six of the strategy, um, shaping, upholding um, and defending international norms, rules, standards um, is an objective of, of the Australian government. And that's you know really led by um, Brendan as our ambassador for cyber affairs and critical technology. But this sanctions announcement uh, that was made this week um, is a really significant step. Um, it's the first time that Australia's autonomous sanctions have been used in this way, um, and it sends a clear message that there are costs and consequences for targeting Australia and Australians in this way. I should say, just taking a big picture, it's really appropriate that we've taken this significant step here because this was a really significant incident. You know, the, the Medibank private uh, breach was one of the most abhorrent things we've seen in the cyber domain. Um, so, I mean, I've been a close watcher of it for a long time, but an incident where more than 9 million people had their private health insurance records breached, you know, um, the majority of that published on the dark web, and incredibly sensitive personal information. You know, we're talking about records of drug, drug and alcohol treatment. Um, we're talking about records of, um, you know, abortion services. You know, this is really abhorrent stuff. And even within the, the cyber criminal community, you know, uh, leaking this information publicly is is sort of considered even beyond the, the norms within that community. Um, so we were very keen to send a strong message that this is, you know, an egregious breach of, of norms in this space um, and that we won't tolerate actions like it and that we'll use all the tools at our disposal to respond. So, you know, seeing three cabinet ministers making this announcement, the Deputy Prime Minister, Defence Minister, uh, the Foreign Minister, and the Minister for Home Affairs and Cybersecurity. You know, it really is an indication about how seriously the government took this issue. I think it's a really good reminder that you've touched on that human impact of the Medibank hack. 
it really, I got the sense that it really touched a very deep and personal chord with most Australians, almost 10 million customers having the most intimate parts of their personal history released in the dark web by a bunch of criminals who are trying to monetize their privacy and monetize that distress. Um, I think it really did touch a chord and it kicked off a whole raft of, you know, the, the work on the cyber strategy and galvanizing sort of industry and public narrative conversations about cybersecurity and the, the capability uplift that's needed across the country. I think it's it's what's also really, you mentioned that it's the first time we've used these autonomous sanctions, um, but it's also quite unprecedented for us to join up in that effort with the UK and the US to sanction this individual. Um, what impact does that have, both from sort of a practical sense against um, Alexander er- Ermanikov and also cyber criminals and cyber syndicates around the world? I'm happy for you to jump for that one, Brendan. I mean, Brendan leads a lot of our e- engagement on this, um, but I, I think this is one of the real success stories of this this active activity. Sure. Look, I think it's fair to say the US, UK, us, and a bunch of other partners have really had a, a gutful of the impunity and anonymity with which cyber criminals operate, and that's a message that was given very clearly to me by by the minister when I started in this role. We need to start imposing consequences and costs where we can. The use of the sanctions is really key to that. But Australia's sanctions hitting uh, assets uh, or travel to Australia are only a limited part of that picture. So we do try to operate in concert with partners. Having the US and UK hours after we announce our sanction impose their own sanctions is a really powerful signal. It will make his life harder. It will make travel harder. It will be, make dealing with the global financial system harder. We do expect um, other partners to also come out and talk about how serious they see this issue and stand with Australia. There are only a small number of countries that have analogous sanctions regimes of the type that we used, which is why we're seeing the US and the UK uh, adopt the same sanctions. But we expect to hear more from other partners shortly. It's really part of a broader effort to say we should not have impunity for cyber criminals. We know they operate from a permissive jurisdiction, usually Russia, and we've called on the Russian government to take more seriously law enforcement efforts against these type of groups. We also call on other countries to build up their capacity to have legal sanctions against these type of actors, to have better investigations against them. We should be getting to a point where a cyber criminal group knows that they can't operate with impunity and that states like ours are talking to each other, are working together, looking where the crimes are committing and working across partnerships, across borders to build up that case of evidence. Our ideal is that we can put some people behind bars for these types of crimes and that will continue to be part of the work. But in the meantime, Sanctions are a pretty powerful tool. The fact that he's been unmasked and put out all over global media is a big deal as well and really undermines the way that cyber criminals uh, operate. So I think you'll continue to see us working really closely together with the US and the UK, but also with a broader range of partners. I think on that point, it's really important to note that you know, there aren't any silver bullets here. You know, like we, we understand that you know, a sanction uh, activity from Australia alone you know, there's a limit to the impact of that. Um, but you can increase the impact, you can increase the costs and the consequences on these act, act, actions in a number of ways by pushing on a number of fronts. So, you know, there are the legal impact, impact implications of sanctions in Australia, 
there's broadening those impacts by working with partners. Then there's also the direct operational impacts of unmasking this individual. It's bad for business to be de-anonymized in this way. Um, it sows uh, paranoia and distrust amongst the people that he works with. Um, it make his life uh, more difficult. But then also we need to couple that with all of the other ways we can impose costs. So offensive cyber operations uh, with anti-money laundering uh, interventions, with law enforcement um, activities, um, you know, issuing arrest warrants, uh, uh, international uh, warrants. So, you know, we understand there aren't any silver bullets here, but we want to make sure that we are increasing costs, imposing consequences on as many fronts as possible to ensure that cyber criminals get the message that if you target Australia and Australians, it's not going to be worth your while. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In a volatile world, Australia's strategic problem demands difficult decisions. Licensed by an inclusive conversation, the ANU National Security College is proud to present Securing Our Future, a conference like no other, informing a distinctly Australian, people-centred vision of national security. Bringing together diverse Australian and international voices, we are bridging disciplines, professions and viewpoints. Join us in Canberra on the 9th and 10th of April this year to engage with thought leaders and decision makers from government, academia and industry. For more details and to secure your ticket, visit the link in the show notes. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. Yeah, there is that strong sense all throughout, you know, this week's developments that Australia is very working very much um, hand in glove with other countries to collectively close the net around these cyber criminals. Um, even though we acknowledge that there is no silver bullet and there's always going to be a few holes through that neck that they slip through, but the closer we can collaborate, the more levers we have to pull, right? Now, you touched on, um, I, as I understand it, it took sort of 18 months of really dogged effort and investigation to the point of unmasking this individual. That's a very long time, um, but I guess I'm, I'm wondering sort of behind the scenes um, what that investigation process looks like. I imagine it is quite exhaustive, um, it is quite resource intensive, but is, is the plan that this will continue to be part of our playbook to unmask these cyber criminals, even if it kind of comes at a, a really long investigative process internationally. Absolutely, this has a, been a big priority. I think uh, you've seen the minister and the minister for cybersecurity, Claire O'Neill, announce their support for that collaborative effort between the Australian Signals Directorate and the Australian Federal Police, investing huge amounts of resources and time in these investigations. Um, we've had up to 100 people in those organisations working together on this investigation. And I think the first thing to say is on the Medibank investigation and uh, Ermakov as well, this is not over. They are continuing their efforts to investigate, to mount a brief of evidence if we can, to find the other players who are involved in that incident. 
But more broadly, I think there's a commensurate investment of time and effort uh, from the Australian government with the scale of the crime that we're seeing. It has to be in collaboration with partners because actors that are targeting Australia are also targeting people in the region or elsewhere in the globe. So there needs to be that unity of effort using each other's capability and resources. Drawing on the private sector, we've got a lot of fantastic cybersecurity firms globally who keep eyes on the behaviours and tactics and techniques and procedures of the cyber criminal groups. So there is a really strong partnership. But I think what, what your average person might underestimate is how difficult this is. Cyber criminal groups are quite sophisticated. They use anonymizing techniques. They use a range of ways to obfuscate their identity and where they're operating from. Unpacking that, lifting the layers of digital uh, masking, finding who had fingers on the keyboard that was responsible for the crime is exceptionally difficult. And I think it's an area where some countries um, are struggling with that capability. Australia, I think, has quite sophisticated capability here. But the fact that it takes so long really shows you how difficult it is to track this down. Doesn't mean that we don't keep trying. In fact, I think we step up our efforts, but it is very challenging to get behind those digital kind of tools that people use to mask what they're doing. Absolutely. And especially if you want to collect enough evidence to really pin it on them to the point where you can affect an arrest, right? You know, if you're if you're hiding behind certain usernames or syndicate groups acting in concert, it is quite difficult, I imagine, to actually un- identify a particular individual. And of course, that, that will be an ongoing effort, as you said. Um, Minister, you wanted to add to that? Well, this is like painstaking work. You know, this isn't just a matter of identifying you know, the handles of individuals on a, on a dark web forum that, that might be been involved in this. This is the, the task of, you know, de-anonymising those handles, of connecting them with real-world um, identities, of building a sufficient evidence base um, on which to base a sanctioning decision. So, you know, it's painstaking work um, from Operation Aquila, the, the, the joint operation from ASD and the Australian Federal Police, but, you know, it really drew on partnerships and assistance uh, with international law enforcement, uh, intelligence and security partners, um, and importantly, um, you know, global private sector partners. You know, I really want to acknowledge the role that Microsoft played um, in this uh, unmasking, um, and also the role that Medibank Private played. They were exemplary in their engagement with government and their cooperation in the incident response, and, you know, that really provides a platform um, for all of the work that was done subsequently in identifying Mr. Emakov and uh, deploying this uh, first use of our sanctions powers in Australia. So we can overall expect to see more of those sanction powers being utilised going forward? Well, the way we talk about it is that, you know, that we will undertake sanctions in the same way as we will um, uh, uh, undertake attribution activities where it's in the Australian national interest to do so. Um, I think the thing to really underline in this case is that this is one of the most significant and egregious incidents that we've seen in Australia um, and that our response um, is commensurate to the seriousness and the significance of the incident. So that proportionality is going to be an underlying principle around these operations? Yeah, you're not necessarily going to sanction every incident that occurs in Australia. Regrettably, there are many incidents happening all around the world. Um, but you know, where, where it is in our national interest to do so, um, and in this case, the significance and the sensitivity of the incident were, were, were quite 
uh, you know, important equities for us, um, we will take that action. Now, like flowing on from that, um, you've mentioned at the very start about the importance of um, maintaining sort of those rules and the international norms around the use of cyberspace. But we are we are seeing globally that some of those rules and norms are under increasing pressure. So as well as sort of maintaining the stasis of those norms and principles, is there a need for new laws or new principles or an uplift in the global conversation about whether the laws we have currently are actually fit for purpose anymore in that landscape? Um, you mentioned as one example, Brendan, that very small number of countries have the same autonomous sanction powers that we have. So is, is part of that conversation around global leadership also looking at laws that are more fit for purpose for the future and not just for the present? I think our starting point is that the cyberspace is not the Wild West. It's not a, a, a world where there is an absence of laws. There are international laws that apply to cyberspace. Uh, the crimes that would be crime in offline involving the stealing of someone's personal data, that's a crime online as well. So we do see that Australian laws pick up uh, the pick up those the types of crimes that we are worried about, that we uh, uh, need to combat. But we are working particularly with partners in the region to help them build their own legal framework. So we are working with countries, uh, Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, to help them build out more sophisticated uh, regulatory frameworks in their countries. We're working with the Pacific to help them apply laws and ensure that crimes that Every, the community expects to be criminalised and for there to be legal sanction for that those are in place on the books. More broadly, I think what we'd called for, we would call for is for everyone to adhere to existing international law. We would call for uh, a permissive environment where cyber criminals are operating from. There's no doubt in anyone's mind this is against the law. It's against international norms. It's against uh, international law. We would like to see those states, and I named Russia because we do see that permissive operating environment there. They don't need new laws to take serious action against these types of cyber criminals. The laws are on the books. The expectations are clear. And we would start by calling for adherence to existing international norms and laws I do think it's an area where there is evolution uh, over time. There is the need to develop international frameworks to ensure they're keeping pace uh, with the trends in cyberspace. But I think it would be a mistake to think that we don't have laws in place which govern uh, what responsible behaviour is, either by cyber criminals or responsible state behaviour in cyberspace. So that's a message that we tend to bring to international conversations um, that it would be a great starting point if everyone could adhere to what we've got on the books now. And yes, we keep on building and evolving, but let's get it right for where, what we have now. Any comments on that, Minister? Do you agree? Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, building on what Brendan said, in this particular instance, um, in the Medivac private breach, the Australian Federal Police sought law enforcement cooperation from Russia. That was not forthcoming. You know, the, Russia is clearly not compliant with its um, obligations as a responsible state behaviour um, in, in cyberspace here. You know, for, for me, to add a bit of colour to what this means and the level of impunity enjoyed by cyber criminals in Russia, you know, I think back to uh, a <laughs> creatively named uh, cybercrime group uh, in Russia, Evil Corp, um, whose sort of putative leader, uh, a bloke named Maxim Yakubitz, 
uh, used to get around Mo- uh, Moscow in a Lamborghini with this revolting fluoro-coloured camouflage pattern. Um, you know, he wasn't hiding, and his uh, license plate on that Lamborghini was the Russian translation of thief. That really sticks in my crawl. Like the, the ransomware wave that that Australia and, and many countries around the world are dealing with. Um, it's not just an irritant, you know, it's it's a scourge. You know, we've, we've seen major implications in Australia, you know, breaches like the, the breach at Toll Logistics that disrupted, you know, significant Australian supply chains, disrupted distribution of, of vaccines, you know, threatens critical infrastructure provision. But, but even more fundamentally, there was a report that came out from RUSI last week that looked at the impacts of ransomware attacks on small business owners and the extent to which those ransomware attacks on small businesses were driving small business owners to contemplate suicide. You know, that a, a business that they built up for their entire life, that they'd invested their entire identity in, had been destroyed, burnt to the ground, taken by these criminals acting with impunity in another jurisdiction. You know, we, we, we can talk about international cyberspace rules and norms, um, and that's really important, but we shouldn't lose touch of the real world impacts of this you know these are real human beings who are suffering from this and the the sanctions activity we took this week um, is uh, Australia's contribution to upholding those international norms but also saying that there needs to be an end to the impunity that these cyber criminals are currently enjoying. Mm. And it certainly seems to be the case that if the the leader of cybercrime syndicates are flashing, actually, you know, they're actually bragging and flagrantly showing off about what they're doing, then clearly what we have in place isn't kind of at that level of enforceability that we'd like. So it's no longer the Wild West and that message needs to be sent really loud and clear. Um, I want to finally touch on sort of what you foresee, you know, as the, the priorities going forward if we want to really, I guess, be that cyber secure leader in the world by 2030 in under Shield 6. You know, you've already outlined the things we're already doing, the investments we're making in the region. Um, and, you know, we've got a pretty ambitious uh, vision of what success looks like by 2030. What are the things that are a priority or top of mind for the both of you in building up Shield 6 and, and making sure that we continue to have those conversations and engagements, um, and both for our cybersecurity and for regional cybersecurity? I might start with you, Minister. <laughs> Great. Uh, well, we, we've just launched our, our cybersecurity strategy, of course. So we, we are in a uh, implementation phase at the moment, you know, betting down those cyber rapid response teams, betting down the uh, Pacific Resilience um, initiatives. Uh, you know, we're still doing capacity build- building activities as well, uh, pushing that through into Southeast Asia as well. So we're in a busy period of activity at the moment. Um, so that that that's fully occupying our capabilities. I can I can speak from firsthand experience on that front. <laughs> I think uh, I'd just add to that. I think um, the clear message from our strategy is. Uh, the status quo is, is is not going to work for us. We actually see a deteriorating threat environment globally. We see things like the mass availability of IoT without much security settings to them, which is just making life easier for people to be targeted and for crimes to be committed. 
we see commercially available cyber tools, the, the range of threat actors who will be in this game over coming years, I think will probably get larger. And this, all of this, um, unless we drive those improvements to resilience that the minister mentioned, will actually be in a worse situation by 2030 or in the coming years. So for me, it feels like there's a real sense of urgency to get out there. Uh, what we're doing in the strategy is not just talking about, we all need to be more cyber aware. We're actually trying to invest in the practical uplift, the availability of secure technology. I think there's a really strong recognition in this region how important this is. Uh, but the other thing I'd add is the importance of working with the private sector on this part. We need the technology that they're selling into the region and in Australia to be more secure. We need people to not face that choice between affordable tech and secure tech. We need secure by design in nearly everything that we use. So as well as work doing our work government to government to build up that uh, capacity, to build up that resilience, it is a much broader partnership to make sure that in 2030, we're not sitting around saying, geez, I wish we could do more about sort of cyber criminals or nation states. We've actually taken the region from where we are now to a much more secure and proper uh, resilient uh, region. So that's a great call to action for speed, for better collaborations with industry and the private sector and for bringing our region and other partners internationally along for that journey. I think we will wrap it up there unless you have any other thoughts or comments that you'd like to add from either of you, Ambassador, Minister. All right, look, I, let, let me just say that, that the response to the Medibank private incident uh, involved, as Brendan said, um, you know, many people across many departments um, in, in the Australian government. I, I just want to pay, pay tribute to the work that they did. There were three cabinet ministers making that announcement, but there were more than 100 people inside the Australian government that, that made it possible. Um, and, you know, for all of the victims of that Medibank private breach, I you know, want them to know that the Australian government was working tirelessly um, to hold those responsible for it accountable. Um, so I just want to thank and congratulate everyone in ASD and AFP and all the government departments involved in that effort um, for you know, a world first, an Australian first use of these type of sanctions powers. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining us on the podcast today, Minister Watts and Ambassador Brendan Dowling. Thanks very much.